Joshua chapter 1. It's a historic morning in the history of our church, and we are looking for principles from uh, Joshua. Let's stand together as we read the word in Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to you, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers uh, to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn it from the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law is not, uh, shall not depart from your mouth, but shall, you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then will you have success. You may be seated. A girl named Amber from Nebraska wrote a national magazine. What are those, asked my younger sister. She had just spotted the old encyclopedias our mother had unearthed in the basement. Mom tried to explain the concept of an encyclopedia to her, but it just wasn't clicking. Finally, she blurted out, it's like Google, but in a book. Don't we all sometimes uh, wish that life would stand still? That's my thought uh, when I review family photos on Facebook. Most of us have a, a hard time with change. Uh, we feel more familiar or more comfortable with the familiar. Yet one thing is constant, isn't it? Change. A traditional Jewish adage caught my eye. Would that life were like the shadow cast by a wall or a tree, but it is like the shadow of a bird in flight. Joshua is a guidebook for change. It's a guidebook for growth through change. There is first in verse 2 a change of leaders, not just any leader, venerable Moses. In 11, there is a change of location. Within three days, you will cross this Jordan. How must this command have sparked a a gamut of thoughts and and a gamut of emotions? 
Crossing Jordan meant a new role from wanderers to warriors. How many do you think in camp felt they were up to that change? I'm pointing out this morning six guidelines to kickstart a new beginning and then a concluding principle. In times of voluntary or involuntary change, six principles, okay? First, we read, we find in verse 2, face reality. In the first five verses, Moses, my servant, is dead. God says to Joshua, Moses is dead, but I'm very much alive. My very name, Yahweh. Do you see the word word Lord twice in verse 1? It's that very special name, Yahweh, in the Hebrew text. It means, I am it's the same name Joshua in, or that Moses encountered at the burning bush. Lord, uh, who shall I say sent me? You say that I am sent you. God says here, though your leader is passing from the scene, your new mission has just begun. A.W. Tozer reminds us, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. So face reality, that's important. It may be a new normal. It may be the in-between land that we talked about several weeks ago. But by the grace of God, face reality. A second principle, move on. Therefore, rise, he says, cross this Jordan. All they've been yearning for now for 40 years is coming to pass. Can you imagine camping out for four decades? Maybe that's your thing, right? Mary could camp out a long time as long as it's Ramada Inn. Any of you ladies identify with that? Yeah. Four decades. I imagine they were very, very willing to trade the old trunk for a chest of drawers. The time had come to move on and to claim the promises of God. The third guideline is in verse 5. Don't be afraid. (laughs) As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. What was Joshua thinking about now? I'm reading an inspiring biography of Harry F. Truman a farm boy from Missouri who became president. Uh, Mr. Truman served out his first term under the shadow of FDR, who passed away in office in his 12th year as president. Couple that with the fact that uh, Mr. Truman never went to college. Are you aware of that? In the first years of his presidency, under the shadow of FDR, he struggled a lot with feelings of inadequacy. But those very feelings became his greatest asset. His disadvantaged background nurtured humility and a simple, straight, 
forward approach in dealing with people and problems. Fear has been defined, F-E-A-R, as false expectations appearing real. Don't be afraid, he says. And then he says, stand tall. If God says it once, it's important. If he says it twice, it's significant. If he says it three times, it's indispensable. Once, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Twice, verse 7, only be strong and courageous. Three times, verse 9, have I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Joshua and all Israel could stand strong because their courage is not rooted in self-confidence, but in God-confidence. Does this speak to anyone in a personal way? He is with them, he says. And he is with us. He is with us in our transition. And then I find the next guideline very interesting and very contemporary. In the last part of verse 7, he says, stay focused. Be careful to, to do according to all the law which my servant commanded you. Don't turn from the left or to the right so that you may have success wherever you go. Concentration is one of the, the huge issues we are facing, especially uh, the young. There's a new malady. Have you heard about it? It's called text neck. Are, are you to speed on this? It's actually showing up in doctor's offices. A physical strain and impairment uh, brought on by incessant texting. Whoop. Can't answer that one now. I do get texts when I preach occasionally. You know that? If you see me going like this, you know? And, and you know, and, and so all I can do is not to look at it. Uh-huh. You're the same way, aren't you? Uh-huh. And, and sometimes I'm sitting here and it happens and I'm thinking, everybody I know on this planet knows what I'm doing right now. <laughs> you know? Actually, it's, I did a little payback this morning. Sitting here, I did my own informal survey. I text a number of people across this platform to see if you would answer. <laughs> you want a list? Okay, give $100 to Books for Pastor and you'll not be exposed. <laughs> it wasn't Don. Don's one that didn't answer, right, Don? Of course, several of you have done it to me, so I thought I'd do a little payback, okay? An informal survey, that's the word for that. Let this sink in. A Microsoft study showed that the average American's attention span is eight seconds. That's down from 13 seconds in 2000. A goldfish's attention span is nine seconds. <laughs> really, I'm not making this up. Teachers, I'm sympathizing with you right now. <laughs> 
Now, what are the implications of this? Some of you are, are here this morning and you're staying very close because of work. You're, you're here. You're staying very close. I know that. But let, let, me, let me put out this channel, uh, this, this challenge, and I don't keep my, my cell phone unless I forget. Sometimes I do have it on me, even as I stand here before you. But let me suggest to you, okay, I, I'm thinking short-term and long-term here. Let, let me suggest to you, and, and somebody's going to say, oh, pastor, it's a generational thing. Oh, it's far deeper than generational. Let me suggest to you that when we come through the front doors, when we're in the foyer, when we're in the sanctuary, let me suggest that we be all here. This is the exhortation When you come to worship, be all here. Okay? Turn it off. Turn it off. Sometimes I forget to turn it off. But what I'm saying is, let us not be so distracted from worship. Uh, You know, what can easily happen is... uh, we can see and we can hear the lyrics. We can hear the reading of Scripture. We can hear them, the Scripture read. Yet, you know, folks, we can miss the message. We can, view, we can mute the voice of God. And, you know, some text while the preacher is preaching, I know who you are too. When we come to worship, let's be all here. Okay? You get the principle? Let's be all here. Whatever that means for you. And then, as you see, he says, enjoy it. That's 8B. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Once the Transition is accomplished. It's time to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in the chaos. Now, that's six principles or six guidelines. One principle. When God calls a leader, he calls followers who share the mission. Say that with me, would you? When God calls a leader, he calls followers who share the mission. To say it another way, a leader can't take new territory by himself. Notice the progression of verses on the screen. Verse 1, it came to pass, the Lord spoke to Joshua. 10, Joshua commanded the leaders of the people. Notice the infrastructure there. And 16, so they answered Joshua saying, all you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Now, Joshua is the illustration of the principle. We turn to the New Testament to flesh out uh, the principle and apply it. Let's turn to Ephesians 4. You would expect me in the closing weeks of my preaching to end up at some point in Ephesians 4. 
Ephesians 4. I'm going to wait for you, okay, till you get there. And he himself, that is the risen, glorified Christ, verse 9, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measurement of the fullness, uh, of the statue of the fullness of Christ. The Barna Research Group asked church members, What do you think the primary role of a pastor is? And 89% said, to meet my needs. The pastors were asked the question, What do you think your primary role is? And 90% said, to equip the saints for ministry. Think of the implications of that. What are some consequences that grow out of? What are the results of a study like this? Well, certainly differing expectations, right? Between pastors and and people. Uh, Frustration on both parts. Another effect that's being shown nationally is short, ineffective pastorates. In the New Testament, leadership is team leadership. Ministry is team ministry. Can you think of a single incident in Scripture where an effective leader worked alone? I've only thought, can th- only think of one group, and that is the judges. Moses, Joshua, Can you imagine how intimidating it would have been for Joshua to have marched around Jericho alone, you know? (laughs) And the rest of that crowd, they're five miles away with their binoculars. No, it was a team vision. David, Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul. Paul mentioned 99 individuals in his writings. I don't mean just enemies. But 99 who had encouraged, 99 who were co-laborers is a word he often uses. He uses an interesting word in, um, in Colossians. I think it's translated uh, comfort uh, in the King James uh, Version. It's actually a medical term you may recognize. Uh, it is the term in the original text, paragoria. Para, meaning alongside. Anybody here, does that strike a chord? Does anybody know what paragoric is? Does any, I want to see if you know what para... Uh, please, let me, let me see. Para, ooh. I grew up with two wonder drugs. Vicks Vapor Rub. Mary Steele, 44 years later, and Mary Steele is on me about, you know, you put it on the squeaking doors, you put it, you know, you put it on the dog, you know. I mean, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. 
The other one I was growing up was paragoric. I was sure as a kid that I'd never see the day of my first day in first grade. I was assured of that. You know, here he lies, dead of an overdose of paragoric. I mean, liquid death. Would you testify to that? Could I have an amen right there? Okay. I mean, whoo, you got, oh, you got a temperature. Take three tablespoons of paragoric. You scraped your knee, you know. Here's two of paragoric. Your sister has a temperature. Here's three paragoric. Do you know what the word paragoria means? The way Paul used it? It is one who lessens the pain. One who lessens the pain. What was he saying? Loyalty, support, encouragement. One who comes along in battle amid the particular trials and of leadership. Paul says, I'm thanking God for you guys. You are a comfort. You're a paragoria. I thank God for those of you who are a paragoria. Now, this is the only place the term pastor or pastors appears in the New Testament. The original word, poimen, appears several times, translated shepherd. It's used of the Lord Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. Viewed together, this gift is sometimes translated teaching shepherd. It's the only dual New Testament gift. The first is the the pastor part. Literally, it is not pastor and teacher. It is pastor-teacher. Pastor, shepherd. It speaks of a relationship, a unique relationship. Teacher speaks of responsibility uh, to feed and, and to nurture. The context begins in verse 7, where Paul introduces the subject of spiritual gifts, which he calls a grace. 8 through 10, there's the person who delivers the gift, the Lord Jesus according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in 11, there is the person who helps develop these gifts. In the early church, before the completion of the New Testament, there were prophets and there were apostles. And by the way, anybody in the early church who went around saying, God's is saying this and God is saying that, there were very strict, strict guidelines that go all the way back to the Old Testament. Nobody could show up and say, listen, I got a word from God for you. Oh, there were specific tests. But there came a time when God's revelation was complete, the finishing of the New Testament. And since that time, he has been raising up pastor teachers to teach and to help people to grow and to discover their gifts. Then finally in verse 12, there is the purpose that directs the gifts. For, he says... The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This word equipping, a better translation than the, than the KJV word, uh, perfecting. 
You know, I find that intimidating. Do you? For the perfecting of the saints, we'll just cross my name off. It means the equipping of the saints. This is what the risen, exalted Lord is doing in his church, and he's doing it through leadership. And really everything grows out of this. This dynamic term translated equipping is used in Matthew 4.21 of the mending of nets. In Galatians 6.1 it's translated restore. Those who have fallen into sin, restore them. In the first century, physicians used it to refer to the setting of a broken bone. You get the picture? The idea is to restore something to its original condition, to make fully prepared, to make complete maturity till we all come together. That's done in so many ways in the life of the church. Now the question then naturally arises, what is the pastor's primary task? What is the scope of his ministry? If you're reading from the authorized King James Version, you get the idea that the pastor teacher has three primary responsibilities for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But notice the difference in in the text. Now, the the King James Version, as well as... um, Most of the popular translations we use have made this connection, this correction, has made this change. For example, the New King James I read from, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, comma, NIV, to prepare God's people for works of service, comma, NASB, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Beyond slight variations in wording, there is one major difference, isn't there? The King James translation has one more comma between saints and for. For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry. The late scholar Kenneth Kenneth Weiss called this the fatal comma, the heretical comma. He points out in the earliest New Testament manuscripts there was no punctuation at all. And then he says this, this comma works havoc with God's plan of operation for the church. How could one little tadpole on a page work such havoc? Because when you see it as the pastors and the staff having a full threefold responsibility It divides the congregation in two very distinct groups. Every church is either a pastor-centered, staff-centered church, or a people-centered church. In a pastor-centered church, the way it works is the pastor and the staff's job is to do the ministry, and the people's job is to show up an hour or so each week and to watch the pastors do their thing and if they should be good enough, if they should do it well enough, then maybe our church will grow. You need to know this. 
On average, when a long-term pastor retires or leaves, there's a 15% turnover. Not especially good news. But in a pastor-led church, or a pastor not led, erase that, delete that. In a pastor-centered church, the percentage can be significantly higher. Why? The relationships are here. They're not here. Do you get that? Do you get it? The work of the ministry is everything you individually have been called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do in, through, working with others. Not only ministry here on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday, but also ministry you're doing together in the community. Call it involvement, call it whatever you want to call it. It's essential that every person learns your shape if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Your spiritual gifts your heart and your passion. And by the way, when you have found your passion, you have found your spiritual gifts, your abilities, your personality. And I love the E question. Whether you're 14 or 94, what experiences has God given you to this point in your life, good and bad, that he wants to use in your life to minister to somebody else? Anybody adopted? Anybody gone through a tough divorce? Anybody lost your job? Have you seen God's grace at work in tremendous ways in your marriage? Then you can encourage somebody else who are troubled. Somebody been a victim of child abuse? I'm going to talk next week uh, a bit. Something I have done over the last several months is that I have kept a journal. It's not a diary, a journal. Uh, it's really ministering to me. There's something about, and I'll say this next Sunday, you know, give me a little slack on that. Uh, there's something about putting down your thoughts. It's something, it's it reflecting. Uh, in a journal, as you're writing down a thought or an idea, it very easily becomes a prayer. But I'm journaling now. The primary reason is that it's ministering to me, but there's another reason. I've got several pastor friends who are two or three years behind me. And I intend by the grace of God, in fact, I've already had the opportunity of ministering to them. And I don't want to forget, and I don't want to forget the roller coaster. And friends, it is a roller coaster. <laughs> I want you to know that. Whew. But I want, to, I want God to use this. And let me say that God is using this process. And, 
And we thank, I thank God for, for our deacons. I thank God for our search team. And I want you to know that I thank God for the way that you have supported this very atypical process. What we're doing here is very different. I got a call from a pastor just a few weeks ago. I hadn't seen the guy in years. He said, hey, I, I hear you guys, I hear what you guys are doing in this pastoral transition. And the, the term is intentional transition. I said, yes, by the grace of God, this, this has been blessed. And he says, you know, I'm retiring very soon myself. And uh, can you send me all of the documents and all of the process? I suspect I'll be meeting with him. Um, you know, there may be some deacons here who will end up in a consulting business out of this. I don't know, you know. Bring me back as an advisor. I work cheap. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is that God is using this church family even in the journey we are on. He's giving us some experiences. It's a first for this church, and it's a first for Mary and me. And God is using it, and he wants us to have a vision of the experiences God has given us. Boy, and that's the whole gamut. That's the whole gamut. Um, okay? What are your experiences? Don't waste your experiences. I don't want to waste this once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you don't either. And let me say it again. I'm excited about so many things, and one is the way God is going to use you in the future. You're going to get calls in the future. The pastor will get calls in the future, and I'm so excited about that because this exalts Christ and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. When you do what you are called to do, what you are gifted to do, it frees the staff and the pastor to do what he only is called to do, what they are called to do. Okay? Effective ministry is a partnership. It's a partnership. Some of you know that Mary and I enjoy riding to small town festivals across the state. Been privileged to be with faith riders across the state. By the way, first rides next Saturday. And we, we just enjoyed this so much. Name that town. The Walnut Festival. This is your time to speak. The Walnut Festival. Name the town. Somebody knew that. There are spiritually informed people here this morning. Spencer. The Woodcutter Festival. Webster Springs. Whoa, you get the star for the day. The Strawberry Festival. Whoa, a lot of you knew that one. If you don't know this one, your West Virginia driver's license will be revoked. The Ramp Festival. Richwood, West Virginia. Hallelujah. 
and uh, all of the faith riders will stand and cheer on this one. The Roadkill Festival. Huh? Marlinton. You can't go to heaven until you go at least once to the Roadkill Festival. And all faith riders said, Amen. Mary and I have been to several of these. Some time ago, it was in early May, we attended the Dogwood Festival in a small West Virginia town. Anybody know where that is? <laughs> the great city of Mullins, the basketball capital of the world in the 1960s. Uh, we walked, uh, we got off the bike and we walked into the main building and to look at some arts and crafts and locating a, a restroom near the door, Mary went in and found the toilet overflowing. So she came out, and there was a lady there, sort of on a welcome desk, and Mary just pointed out that, you know, the, the, the toilet isn't working, and the lady, obviously in charge, said this, oh, I'll go get the mayor. What does it say about a town's future? And that breaks my heart being in Wyoming County. It just, just, just upsets me. What does it say about a town's future when the best use of the mayor's time and energy is to make sure the toilets are in good working order? And what does it say about a church? when 80% of the ministry is in the hands of 20% of the people, when the pastor and staff are expected to do ministry, that people have been gifted and called by the Holy Spirit to do. Some people have been thinking aloud since last August, and... Folks are saying to me, uh, Larry, what does the future hold for us? What's the future hold for you? Folks whom I love with all of my heart, take a long look at Ephesians 4. The future is predictable. Let's stand together. I'm not going to be maudlin. I'm, I'm, I'm asking God to help me not be overly emotional. next two Sundays
It's really time to evaluate, friends. It's really time to evaluate. It's really time to confess. It's really time to reorder some priorities. It's really time for revival. It's really a time to say, why has God planted us in this community? What is God going to do in the next chapter? Speak to our hearts, enlarge our vision. Holy Spirit, we pray. We pray. Inspire us. That's what we need. Father, we need more than just facts. We need more than some lines on the page of Scripture. We need to be inspired. Through the humor, we need to be convicted. And whatever it means to join hand in hand and heart in heart and to accomplish your purposes in the next phase of ministry. Uh, move us. Father, a young pastor comes. Not just a pastor, but a young pastor with all of the energy, with all of the vision, with all the passion. We expect that. We anticipate that. And we pray for a heartfelt partnership. We're so excited about what you're going to do. Some things are so great, so deep, so kingdom impacting that if we knew what you're going to do, it might scare us to death. Draw this church family together. And we pray, even as Dan has challenged us, and even as the family is voting today. Um, we know it's a very edgy day for uh, Chris and Leanne. And Father, been there. Comfort them, bless them, even in, in their worship today. And uh, we wait upon you. We think of the Safe House uh, Banquet Father later this week. What a strategic time it is for Brian's Safe House. The opening of the Spare's Nest now on the calendar. How crucial Thursday is, not only in fundraising, which is extremely important, but in the sharing of the vision, in the next phase. For Dr. Fritz and Kathy, for GBCS and 
the search team now. We wait upon your timing. And what you do, Father, we will be careful to praise you. We will not imagine that we have put together any plan that is so brilliant, (laughs) that is so wonderful that others would want to hear about it. But we give you praise and we give you glory. Thank you for the newcomers who are here today and, and visitors and friends who have just sort of been listening in to this family talk. Thank you for each of them. members of the body of Christ. Encourage and bless our staff in these days of transition. Oh God, we thank you for them. And we wait upon you. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.